Yahweh, we just thank you for this night. We just thank you for bringing us to another book of the Bible. And we just pray that you reveal yourself in this book and that we would be able to see the message that you have about leaders. This book is big time on leaders and how a nation should be run. And I just pray that that would speak to us as we live in our own nation, look at our own leaders, that we'd be able to get your biblical definition of a leader and evaluation. I just pray that you just open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say and help us see the richness and the depth of this book. In Jesus' name, amen. We are starting Judges. In the Greek, in the Hebrew, it is Judges, and it's obviously because it's about Judges. And so that's where the title comes from. Now, once again, this book begins with the Vivictol and, meaning that the very first word is and, meaning that it's continuing the book of Joshua, which is continuing the book of Deuteronomy, because this is part of this second section of what's called Deuteronomic history. Now, remember, the Torah was about establishing the promised land, promising the promised land, preparing them for the promised land, and getting them to the promised land. Now, the Deuteronomic history with Joshua was them taking the promised land and then them living in the promised land based on the principles and the preparation of the law that God laid out for them in the Torah. So we are now in the promised land in the book of Joshua. Joshua has conquered most of the land, and that's where the book of Judges begins. So the setting is basically, once again, we came out of the Exodus in around 1446. God used Moses to deliver his chosen people out of Egypt. They were coming out of Egypt under the Abrahamic covenant and under the Abrahamic promises of Genesis that God would give them a land, make them into a great nation, bless them, and so that they can be a blessing to the world. The book of Exodus tells of the Exodus where God brings them out of slavery, a people that have nothing that were enslaved. He adopts them as his own people. He gives them the law to teach him what righteousness looks like and how to reflect his character and how to rule and subdue the world as the nation of God. He gives them the tabernacle so that they can actually dwell with God and be with him and he can be with them. And then he gives them the sacrificial system for when they screw it all up and they can get right with God and be cleansed and atoned. He brings them through the wilderness. They fail to take the promised land because of lack of faith. They make them wander till that generation dies for 40 years. 1406, Moses brings them to the promised land and Joshua brings them into the promised land. And so we just finished the book of Joshua where Joshua leads them on about a 14-year conquest of the land. So remember, Joshua had them conquer the major cities, not all the cities, but as united tribes, they went around and they conquered all the major cities around the land of Canaan. Now, God sent them all back to their tribal territories, which you can see up on this map. The multicolored regions are the multiple tribal territories, but the black line that goes around them is the only land they really conquer. So the black line around this is the land that they actually conquered. So you can see there's a lot yet to conquer. Now it's up to the individual tribes to finish the conquest. For most of Israel's history, since their exodus, they were led by Moses, who kind of took every role. He operated kind of like a king and a judge, 
and he operated like a judicial judge until he delegated it out to 70 other judges in the book of Numbers. He acted like a king because he made all the decisions and led them militarily and all that kind of stuff. And he also acted as a priest because he interceded on their behalf and he was a Levite himself who could go into the tabernacle. And he most certainly acted as a prophet. And because he actually went into the divine council or went into the presence of Yahweh and came back and spoke the will of God to the people. So that they were really dependent upon Moses as their leader, as basically the greatest prophet that has ever lived, as according to the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy says. So they became very dependent upon him. After the time of Moses going into Joshua, they obviously became very dependent upon Joshua as their military leader in the conquest. But what is going to begin to happen is, towards the end of Joshua's life, the priesthood starts becoming dominant. And God established the priesthood in Numbers and laid out the criteria in the book of Levitical in Leviticus. And Israel starts becoming led by priests. And the priests really do dictate the flow of the nation. We talked about in Joshua how he put Levitical cities run by the priests in every single tribe. So they're spread out. And it becomes very dependent upon them. However, there's also this emphasis on the judges start becoming more powerful and more influential. And so they begin to move from a prophetic leadership and a military leadership and more into a priestly, spiritual, what we would kind of consider like pastors and judges and leading this nation. However, the judges that we begin to be introduced to in the book of Judges is not like a judicial judge in the way that we see. Now, they do seem to have the role of actually acting like a judge, like Judge Judy or something like that. They do seem to function like that because when we get to Deborah, we're told that Deborah is sitting at the tree of the, the a palm, the desert palm, and she's actually judging and actually hearing court cases and that kind of stuff. But what we see is when we go through the book of Judges, they obviously are doing a lot more military leading and more of like a political leadership than any kind of actual making decisions. The word for judge here in the Hebrew is shafat. And shafat can have the idea of judging or also like almost a deliverance kind of a thing. And a deliverance as in giving a verdict that delivers somebody in a court case or literally physically liberation, delivering you from bondage and oppression and that kind of stuff. And so what it seems like is that the better way of understanding these judges in the book of Judges is that they're more like a local military political leader. And they're very localized. And the thing you need to understand that we're going to go through six major judges and ten minor judges that we're only going to get like a sentence or so on. A lot of people get the impression when they read Judges that like you have Judge Ehud and he's leading the nation, and then he dies, and he's succeeded by Judge Othniel, or Othniel, and then Ehud, and then he's succeeded by Barak, or Barak, and then he's succeeded by Gideon, and there's like the presidential or kingship succession. But that's not all true. These are local judges. And so you can see on this map that these judges are mostly located in certain regions, and this is in the notes too. So you have Othniel leading in the Judea territory, Samson up here in Dan, Ehud will be in Benjamin, 
Jephthah will be in Gilead. And so they're more spread out, and they only seem to be controlling a certain small region. This doesn't even seem to be tribal. It seems to be like whatever, more and more like um, clan-oriented, and it can merge into different things. The book of Judges covers about 300 years of history. It covers about 300 years of history. It takes us to the last, last years of Joshua all the way up to Samuel, the first official prophet of Israel ever, and when the kings begin with Saul. These judges cover about 300 years, and we know that more likely the way that we read this is the idea that there are probably thousands upon thousands of judges during this 300-year time period. At any one time, there could be 20, 30, 40, 50 judges ruling throughout the land, having their own territory, kind of like governors in America, and that they're dying off and being replaced all at different times. So you can have a judge that's coming into power in Judah in the third reign, third year of the judge in some other part. And so there just seems to be all this scattering. So there's thousands upon thousands of judges. And at different times, God calls them up to lead a political military deliverance of the people. But then at the very end of their life, we're, we're given a couple years of their life where they deliver Israel or a small section of Israel. And then we're told that they, as long as they were judged, there was peace in the land for X amount of years. 8, 18, 20, 40. Those are usually the common numbers. It seems that once they delivered the enemy and delivered them from the oppression, that they might have gone more into the political, actual court hearing, judging kind of a role. God first raises them up to deliver in a military kind of a way. And then from that point on, they tend to function more in a judicial, political kind of a way as they keep the peace and maintain the order of the land. What God is not interested in and what he's never been interested in is telling you the history of the world or even Israel. Remember, there are so many things that God leaves out. We're not told about a lot of David's life. We don't, we're not told about Saul's life. We're not told where Cain got his wife. We're not told about how, where he got all these people. Caesars. God is not interested in that. And you go through the genealogies, and he just mentions a bunch of names and skips over a lot of people. And you're like, what about their story? And we hardly know anything about Samuel, even though he seems to be like the guy that you would actually want to know the most about because he actually does most things right. There, he's not interested in that. What he's interested is in who is God and how you can know him. And he picks certain stories to tell this theological message. And so God is going to pick six specific judges in no real actual particular chronological order in order to illustrate a downfall of moral character. He's not interested in a historical account of Israel's development. He's not interested in telling you the stories of great heroes and leaders. He's interested in showing you moral decline over a long period of time and what it does to a nation. These leaders are serve in that kind of a function. So there's going to be six major cycles that we're going to go through. So that brings us to structure. The book of Judges is divided into three major sections. The first section is chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, 6, and this is the prologue. And the prologue is divided into two sections. The first part is a brief summary of Israel's kind of transition from a single military leader, Joshua, going into a more localized tribal leadership of the judges. 
and it just kind of gives you a matter of fact detail of really quick, this is kind of what happened. Then that second part of the prologue gives you the theological commentary on whether they were succeeding or failing, and most of the time it's their failure. And so that's the prologue. It introduces you to the world of really jacked up leaders. <laughs> then we enter the second section, which is chapter 3, verse 7 through 1631. So this is the bulk of the book. And this is the actual judges. So we will go through these six major judges and ten minor ones. Then we get to the epilogue. And the epilogue is chapter 17, verse 1 through 2125. And this is where, for all intents and purposes, the crap hits the fan. This is basically where, now that you've seen what kind of leaders we've had for the last 300 years, this is how the people respond to it. And basically the idea is if this is the kind of leaders you're going to have, these are the kind of people you're going to have. Each cycle begins with this, everyone did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. But then that last epilogue ends with everybody did what was right in their own eyes because they had no king. And the point is, when your leaders are jacked up in their character, the people will be even worse. Because the people will always take what the leaders do to an extreme. And they'll, go, they'll sin even further, and they'll mess up even further, because that's the example that's set for them. And what one man does, or what one woman does, the thousands that follow them do it even bigger. That's what the epilogue basically ends with, is... They need help, serious help. And the main emphasis here is on the failure of their character. So the, the central part is the main section. There are six cycles in this section. And like I said, they all begin with Israel did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. That's how you know we're getting into a new section, is with that key phrase. Each cycle will begin with this line, and then they'll go through several stages. And the first stage will be Israel's apostasy. It'll be them falling away from God. So the first stage is their idolatry, their compromise with the surrounding people. They begin to live like them and live with them. And that usually is a really brief sentence. And the Israelites gave themselves over to the idols and begin to act. The second stage is Israel begins to be oppressed. Even though Israel had a hard time conquering the enemy, the enemy had no problem oppressing them. And that's something they never got. <laughs> they never got that. So they get oppressed. And the oppression becomes really severe. Third part is they cry out to God. They completely abandon God. They snub him. They worship other idols. And then when they're in trouble, they don't go to their idols for help because they know they can't help them. They go to God. And they go to God and they cry out for help. And that's usually a brief sentence or a line too. And then it says that Yahweh will deliver them through a judge. He'll, and that's the main part of each cycle. So it'll tell you the story of how that judge got called by God, how he delivered them. And then it will say Israel had peace for X amount of years. And that's usually one sentence as well. And so this is the, this, these are the stages of each cycle where the deliverer delivering them is the main focus. Now with these six judges, there's a pattern that's being developed. If you, if you understand these stages, peace, and them crying out, it's really interesting how God is going to use these stages to communicate a message about the people's hearts. And one of the things you'll realize is Othniel and Ehud, the first two judges, are the only good judges in the book of Judges. 
And I know you're going to think, like, well, but what about Gideon and Samson? I were taught they were great in Sunday school class. No offense, but that's wrong. <laughs> when you actually read the story, really, not, not like the PG version that your Sunday school teacher taught. You know, no offense, I'm a Sunday school teacher, that kind of stuff, and I know there's great ones out there. But when you actually get into that part and you read it, you're like, oh, that's why they didn't teach me that part in Sunday school class, because that's kind of jacked up. And, but when you focus on that, you realize, wow, Gideon's not really, I don't want him anywhere near my family. When you read the details, you realize these guys are not good. So what's interesting is the narrator makes this point because Ehud and Othniel are the only two that are ever called deliverers, judges. Nowhere throughout the rest of the, the Bible or the book of Judges are the other ones actually called judges. We know that technically and historically they were judges, literally, but God never ever calls them shafats, delivers, because they don't actually in his mind and his definition actually end up delivering the people. Only Othniel and Ehud actually in God's book function like a true biblical godly judge. The other ones literally historically were judges, but they don't meet God's definition of actually delivering the people. The only hint we get is that Deborah seems to be functioning as a judge, and she's portrayed as a very godly woman, but she's not even the major judge in that story that's called to deliver. And then from that point on, Gideon is never called that, Samson's never called that, Jephthah's never called that. And so Othniel and Ehud are the only two judges, and so that's an important pattern to pay attention to, is that we assume they're called judges because they're in the book of Judges, and there's a long story about them, but God never calls them that. The point is that it only matters what they are in God's eyes. The other thing is that you have to pay attention to is the land had rest. For a lot of the judges, it'll say the land had rest, but if you notice with each judge, the numbers get smaller and smaller and smaller. So the amount of time period that they give them rest decreases over time. And to the point that when you get to the last one, like Samson, it doesn't even say anything about the land having rest. Samson does not bring rest to the land in any kind of a way. Then we're also told about the people crying out. And so you see this pattern of the people crying out. And when you get to Samson as well, they don't cry out for help. They've become so compromised and so like the Canaanites they don't even cry out for help. And so you see they're crying out for help gets less and less and less until it completely disappears altogether. These are the three major things that God kind of emphasizes to show the downfall of the judges' period. Purpose. What is the purpose of the book? There are actually three major purposes. Judges is a dense, complicated book. And you have to realize that for the Torah... As, as amazing and beautiful, and it is the word of God, the Torah is more like 101 literature. It's beautifully crafted, it's well put together, but it's kind of like God is introducing you to things. And he's teaching you. And he starts very simple, and he's laying everything out, and he's teaching you things, and the, the narrators are very blatant. This is wrong, this is right, that kind of stuff. And I mentioned this with Joshua. When you get into the Deuteronomic history, you start getting like two, your 201 literature classes. 
And now that the literature becomes more dense, it becomes more interwoven, it becomes more puns and word themes and ideas, and the narrator becomes less in your face, this is good or bad. It kind of begins to expect you to, now that you've been taught in the Torah who God is and what his plan is, he kind of expects you to be able to figure out your own evaluations of what's going on. Judges when things start getting a little bit more complicated, more literarily rich. And then when we get to Samuel and Kings, it's going to get incredibly complicated. And it's going to get very gray, very fast. And there's going to be a lot of head scratching because God really wants you to think now. So it's more like the 400 level classes. And God is intentionally doing this to really challenge do you really get the law and the character of God as we get deeper and deeper in these grayer, more complicated, more literally rich and dense material? You're going to see a lot more interesting literary devices being used in this book. So there are three major purposes, unlike usually most of these books had one or two. And the first purpose of the book of Judges is the defense for Yahweh's character and reputation, which has been soiled by Israel's failures, sin, and rebellion. In the ancient world, what happens to the people is a commentary on the gods. So if the people are poor and they're oppressed, your gods are weak and pathetic. And if your people are strong and dominant and oppressing other people, your gods are powerful and mighty. When Israel begins to fail, they were to be a blessing to the world and a testimony to the glory of Yahweh to all the other nations so that all the other nations would be attracted to Israel, want to become a part of it like Rahab, and then embrace this God. But when Israel begins to fail miserably and constantly gets oppressed by nation after nation after nation, the nations, in the way that they think, can very easily say, your God is pathetic. The first purpose is to explain that Israel's oppression is a result of them disobeying Yahweh and Yahweh giving them over to their consequences as clearly laid out in the book of Deuteronomy. And so this is very important that Deuteronomy comes before Judges because you can't say, oh yeah, Yahweh, you're just saying that because that's convenient now. And Yahweh can say no, because if you go back about 300 years, I had delivered this covenant law called Deuteronomy, where I very clearly laid out if they were obedient, they would become the greatest nation, and if they weren't, they would be oppressed by other nations. Judges explaining why Israel is failing and not Yahweh is failing. And in fact, every single time he raises up a judge and does something miraculous, actually gives him greater credit than any other success could. And so this is primary a defense for Yahweh's character and his reputation. The second major purpose is judges to warn the danger of compromise and assimilation with the surrounding cultures. So it warns what will happen if you slowly begin to compromise. And compromise seems innocent and small when you're doing it, but eventually it stacks up and then it becomes a slippery slope down into destruction. The reality is the book is showing you that this doesn't happen overnight. Nobody wakes up and says, I want to be a total screw-up. I want to completely walk away from God and muck up my nation. This happens slowly over time. And so this is important for you to understand that Othniel and Ehud are going to be godly. Gideon's not going to be totally off the charts, but he's going to begin to do little things. And then we get the next judge and little things. And then we get the last. And then we get Samson and that guy, by goodness, 
is a four-year-old child in the body of a 40-year-old man who's completely oblivious to who God is and completely driven by his own desires. And it's because he's been raised in this kind of a culture. That's my little synopsis on Samson. So it's going to warn of these slow compromises. And the third major purpose is to demonstrate the need for godly leadership. And oh my goodness, we need the book of Judges in America right now. And the reality is, this is going to show you the need for godly leadership. This is the most important point, I think. I try very hard to stay away from political commentaries on different presidential figures and that kind of stuff. And I'm still going to stay away from that. And I'm not going to judge you or condemn you for whoever you voted for in the last of elections, because I very firmly believe that you can be a liberal, strong liberal, and be a Christian. And I very firmly believe that you can be a strong conservative and be a Christian. And I, our pastor even just spoke to this last Sunday. And politics, political discussions of how we work out Christianity and biblical principles in politics is a conversation for believers at a table who care and love about each other and want to make the nation a better place. And I'm all for that. And that's a whole other conversation. But I think I have every right to commentate on the character of our leaders as a Bible teacher. And no offense to who you vote for, but the character of both presidential leader candidates this last election, I think, was appalling. I think this election was probably one of the worst elections ever in American history, at least obviously. I know the character of previous presidents have been bad, but they didn't flaunt it and celebrate it like they have. And this is the problem with a two-party system because they kind of force you to make compromise. Like, okay, I, I'm going to vote for Christian values in this party, but they reject Christian values. And then, or I can go to this party where they support Christian values, but they also reject other Christian values. And then I have to determine what Christian values are the most important. And that's a problem with a two-party system. But one of the things that just has appalled me is just the character of Trump and the things that he said and the pride that he has and the way that he says things. And, and never have we ever had a president that's tweeted things that, like, I would be appalled if my kids were tweeting this kind of stuff. And here's he's our presidential leader. But the reason I'm talking about this is for this reason specifically. I think we can all agree that the character is not there. And, and if I don't think you would be here if you disagree with me. The reason I'm saying this is this. One of the things that really bothered me was Ben Carson especially. I really kind of liked him until he said this. I don't mean that politically. I'm not saying, oh, I'm totally in alignment with everything. But I liked him as a person. He seemed okay. But I heard him say it, and then a lot of Christians on Facebook started saying the same thing. And what horrified me more about the presidential campaign than the actual presidents themselves was what Christians were saying about them. And the quote that Ben Carson said was, it doesn't matter what Trump's character is. It only matters that he gets things done. And that horrified me, especially when so many Christians begin to repeat that on Facebook. Oh, I don't care. As long as he like makes America great and restores us back to our glory days and does this and this and this, who cares what his character is? That is the absolute opposite thing that the Bible is saying. Here's the reality. If you don't have good godly character, 
then God will not use you to do great things and get things done. And the reality is, Gideon is a coward. Moses basically says, forget you, God, I'm not going. I'm this pathetic guy who can't do anything. David is a little boy that nobody wants to bring him to the anointing because why would he ever be king? All these leaders are pathetic people in the world's eyes. They're insignificant. And yet, when God comes in their life, he does amazing, great things with them, and he gets things done. And the point of Judges is this. The absolute most important thing in any leader is their character. And that is the most important message. And it has really horrified me that so many Christians, and I know there's probably a lot out there that are horrified by that as well, but they don't seem to be the ones making the comments on social media, is that so many Christians have willingly sacrificed character for the sake of political agendas. And the book of Judges is warning us that when we don't lift up and pursue and support and vote for or follow or whatever you want to call it, men and women with great character, then the last several chapters of Judges is going to be our nation. Because God can use anybody. And we're going to see that. He's going to use Samson to do great things. But all Samson does is ends up killing a bunch of enemies. But he does not change the nation. And it never says he gave them peace and rest. And when we transition into Samuel... And we're introduced to the last judge, and that's Eli, who ends up taking Samuel in, and Samuel's raised by him in the temple. Eli is absolutely pathetic. He's absolutely just pathetic. And he's the one leading the nation, and all he does is really just sit around and do nothing all the time. And he feeds off of his children, who are corrupt and stealing from everybody. But he doesn't care because he's making money and getting food off of it. And so the reality is, the third purpose is character is absolutely essential. And not that character has to be perfect because nobody's perfect and nobody's good and that's the message of the Bible. But at least someone who's bothered by the imperfections of their character and they surround themselves with people and they're doing everything they can to improve their character. They at least say character is important to me. And they don't tweet about their bad character and smile really big. And I think that's really important for us to understand that if we really truly are going to have revival and find redemption in America and make America great again, in a biblical sense, we've got to start emphasizing character again. And we've got to really start getting back to that. And I think as we go through the book of Judges, really, remember, the whole point of this is to teach you about who God is and how to know him, but it also becomes a commentary on our own culture. And so really think about our culture and where we are as we look at the book of Judges. And then Samuel will show us how do we come out of the muck once you're there. And they're going to be neck deep in it. The point of this is that this is their character. Another thing that I want to speak to on purpose is a lot of people have mistakenly taught. I think one of the reasons that people, I think a lot of people unintentionally ignore a lot of the red flags of the Judges and how bad their character is, because they show up in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. And it says, by faith Gideon, by faith Samson. They're like, whoa, 
He's just going through all these amazing people. They must have been amazing. That then unintentionally taints our interpretation as we read about these guys. But you have to realize something. The Hebrews 11 should have never ever been called the Hall of Faith. Because if you've ever really, if you've been in enough of my classes, if you really paid attention to the Bible, the Bible is actually saying the complete opposite about humans. That we're absolute failures. And we're evil and we're wicked. The, and the entire message of the entire First Testament is we screw it up all the time. Which becomes the layup for Jesus Christ. And until you realize how hopelessly stupid and much of a failure you are, and no offense, God still loves you, <laughs> only then can we truly appreciate who Christ is, what he's done, and cling to him, and then become the great child of God that God intends to be when we surrender to him. And that's where your greatness is found. And you have to realize that in Hebrews, kind of a major purpose is, the whole purpose of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ to the angels, Moses, the priesthood, the law, the old covenant. is never about how great humans are. The whole thing is the Hebrews just goes through every person in the first testament that was major and says Christ is better than them. So I don't know how people read 10 chapters about Christ is better than them, better than them, better than them, and they get to chapter 11 and they're like, oh, look at these great humans. And, and, and no offense, I know that you might have thought that because you were led by a teacher or something like that kind of stuff, but remember, the other key is repetition. Repetition tells you what the main point is. And the repetition is not Abraham, Abraham, Abraham is great. The repetition is by faith, by faith, by faith. It was not, the point is this. Hebrews is talking about that Christ is superior to anything that has ever come before him. And then what the author does is, and shows you, look at the amazing things that God accomplished when these people put faith in God. Therefore, the ultimate conclusion is, if Christ is superior to all things, and you make Christ the object of your faith, then there's no end to what God can accomplish. And that's the main point of chapter 11, was not about how great these guys are, but how amazing God was to accomplish the things that he did through them because they demonstrated faith. And the point wasn't that Gideon was an amazing man of faith. The point is even a scumbag like Gideon, when he showed a little drop of faith, God pulled off in a miracle. How much more can God change your country, your world, your life, and use the people around you when you put all your faith in Christ as your object? Don't let that misunderstanding of the whole argument of Hebrews, this is why you can't come in the middle of books. The, the argument of Hebrews is not how great these men and women were, but how great God was that what he did and when they demonstrated a little bit of faith. In this sense, we can say, yes, there are moments that Gideon and Samson are going to show faith in God and God's going to do an amazing thing, but that is not a commentary on their overall lifelong character as a judge. The commentary on their character as a judge is not one line in Hebrews talking about faith, but it's an entire chapter on their life in the book of Judges. Does that kind of make sense? That actually becomes even more encouraging. Because rather than putting Gideon up on this false pedestal where you feel like, oh, I can never do that, 
then you realize, my goodness, he is an absolute screw-up, and yet God was still able to do that when he showed a little bit of faith. So if I have the Holy Spirit and Christ dwelling in me, and I can actually commune and live and depend on the Holy Spirit, and I can show some faith, then imagine what God can do with me. And that becomes far more encouraging than the hall of faith that I can't live up to. That's important to understand as we go through judges that don't let a false interpretation of Hebrews taint the way that you interpret these judges we go through. That brings us to the themes. There are three major themes, and I'm going to not really develop these a whole lot because, one, they flow right out of the purpose, which we've talked about, and, two, we're going to develop them as we go through the book. But the first theme is Israel's downward spiral. And so it's kind of like just flushing yourself down the toilet. That's the book of Judges. Each judge is just going to get worse. They're going to do the same cycle six times, but each time it's going to be worse because it's going to be closer to the drain. It's a downward spiral that God is really trying to help you understand. And this is really important. Corruption doesn't happen overnight. Corruption is a long process. In fact, the slower that Satan can work in your life corrupting you, the more likely you're allowed to allowed to happen because it's so subtle. The second theme is Yahweh's willingness to deliver. No matter how jacked up these people get, God's still going to deliver them. He's still going to deliver them. And I think Judges is an amazing commentary on the patience of God, his willingness to pursue us, love us, and deliver us. And this is what I tell my students. When we get to the end of Judges, I know, and here's the other thing too, I'm all, I'm a realist. So, I have a very real, maybe tipping into the pessimistic part of what America is right now. I'm a very realist. I'm, I, I know what America is, and I'll be the first one to commentate on our failures. And I think that's one of the jobs of a biblical commentary. However, here's the thing. I'm also not a doom and gloom into the world. If I were, I would be buying a place in Alaska and bunkering up right there right now. Okay, the fact that I'm actually teaching high school kids shows you that I actually have hope for the future. Because if I had no hope, I'd be in Alaska bunkering down. No joke. I am hopeful. And as much as... And there are people in America and Christians who are like, oh my gosh, look what America is. And it's the end of the world. Well, actually, we're only a small percentage of the world population. But it's the end of the world and it's all doom and gloom and there's no hope of ever coming back. When we get through the end of Judges, you're going to realize America is nowhere close to the depravity of the culture of the Judges. Yes, some of those things are happening in America, but not in a universal, governmental, everybody in America, amening it kind of a way. The reality is, we are nowhere compared to the depravity of the book of Judges. Yet, when we get to the book of Samuel, God is going to use one man, Samuel, to start a revival and change the hearts of the people and start bringing them back out of it. And it's going to be continued by David, who's not really that great of a guy either. And I point to my students, and this is why I'm a teacher. Because I know I don't have like a world influence like politics and changing people's mind. I'm not charismatic and I don't. But I know that I'm teaching a bunch of kids that are going to go out into the world and then they're going to go into all those nook and crannies of the political culture. And my point to them is, if God can use one man like Samuel to bring a revival and a redemption 
to the culture of the scumbag depravity of judges, then imagine what he can do with a whole group of you with the Holy Spirit in our culture when we haven't got anywhere close to that. And so this is the realism in me. The realism looks at the country and says, this is jacked up. But the realism also says, yet God can pull us out of anything if we begin to emphasize character and our leadership again. Does that kind of make sense? And so that's the tension I try to hold as I try to raise three girls in this country, to not be oblivious to what they're in, but at the same time not be so doom and gloom and depressed and act like there's no hope for them and why would you ever bring a kid into this world kind of a thing. And then I think if you don't do that, you get incredibly naive and you lose your kids or you get incredibly depressed and you lose your kids. And so we need to maintain that tension. We need to maintain that tension. And I think that's a major point um, that God is willing to do anything to deliver us and redeem us out of whatever we think is hopeless. That's a major theme here. And then, of course, there's this theme of a need for a godly king. And the book of Judges is going to make this point that they had no king and therefore everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Now, what you need to understand is this does not talk about David. The point is not like, oh, if they just had a king, everything would be great. Because if you just open any history book, you realize that's not true. That's not true at all. Or if they just had David. That's all, it's all pointing towards David. Well, when we get to Samuel, realize, I would never want that guy anywhere near any of my daughters. So that can't be what the book of Judges is talking about. But in some ways, it is pointing David. And this, this is where we start getting into the, the paradoxes, where God is going to be pro-king and anti-king. He's going to be pro-temple and anti-temple. And you're like, okay, how do I reconcile this? But we can't reconcile it until we get to those moments. He's kind of pointing towards David because David is going to be this example of what a godly king is at the same time as an example of what not to be. But that's for the book of Samuel. But what he's really talking about is what's called the Deuteronomic king. And the idea is who is ultimately their king? Yahweh. And the point is in those days, Israel did what was right in their own eyes which is important because Eve saw that the fruit was good and pleasing and beneficial for knowledge, and she took. Yet God saw that the creation was good and said, don't eat of the tree. This is called autonomy. When I make myself a law unto myself, and I decide that God's wrong and I'm right, and what I determine is right and wrong is actually the truth, and I'm determining that in my own eyes. And when I do that... Proverbs and Psalms tells me the heart of man and woman is evil and wicked and leads to destruction and death. And James chapter 1 tells me sin, desire leads to sin and sin leads to death. So the reality is the idea is that they're rejecting their ultimate king, Yahweh. And first and foremost, when you read that phrase, in those days Israel had no king and they did what was right in their own eyes, you should be hearing that they've rejected Yahweh their king and therefore they're autonomously following in the footsteps of Eve. They're seeing what they want and they're taking and they don't care about what God's commentary is on. And that's first and foremost. The second thing that it means by that is a literal human king. But it means a Deuteronomic king. We're going to talk about this more when we get to Samuel. 
But in Deuteronomy chapter 17, 14 through 20, God lays out the criteria for a king. We talked about this when we were in Deuteronomy. And the whole point is a king that is limited in power because they're the vice regent of Yahweh as their king and they are following God's moral character. And so the idea is that Israel is doing what's right in their own eyes because they've rejected their ultimate king, but they also don't have a godly moral character king leading them. And the point is that Israel would actually be good if they first submitted to their heavenly king and followed a morally wise, godly character king who was following Yahweh as their ultimate king. And that's pointing out the true hierarchy. God is okay with human leaders because that's exactly what he established. In the garden, Adam and Eve rule and subdue. He lifts up Moses. He lifts up Elijah. He lifts up lots of humans. What he's not okay with is you not being a Deuteronomic leader. And that's important to understand that this isn't just about having a king in a literal sense. This is about having Yahweh and a human Deuteronomic king. And because they don't have those two, that's why they're doing what's right in their own eyes. And that's what's setting you up for Samuel. Because it's going to keep repeating that over and over again. And then when we get to Samuel, we're going to be introduced to a non-Deuteronomic king, Saul, and a Deuteronomic king, David, and the book of Samuel is going to show you the difference between those two guys ruling the nation. Even though they're both sinners, they both screw up, they're both selfish, ultimately in David is a Deuteronomic king, and God is able to use him in powerful ways. Yet he can't use Saul, because Saul is nowhere close to Deuteronomic king. And if you don't understand why Judges is saying what it's saying, then you're not going to understand the commentary that God is using Saul and David for in his, the next book. Does that make sense? These are the major purposes and the major themes of the book of Judges.